Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. And I'm Rebecca Gifford. I'm Larry's partner in Parkinson's and in life. That's Doc, our bird, in the background of this episode. (laughs) This is When Life Gives You Parkinson's. Today we're talking about a new book exploring a readily available yet unproven treatment for Parkinson's and potentially a neuroprotective treatment that could slow or stop Parkinson's in its tracks, lithium. Lithium is the third element on the periodic table of elements. The symbol is L-I. A mineral and alkali metal, it is the lightest metal known to humankind. So light it can float on water and soft enough to cut with a knife. Because it is the lightest metal, it can be alloyed with other metals such as aluminum and copper to make strong, lightweight metals. Lithium is one of three elements produced in large quantities during the Big Bang. The other two being hydrogen and helium. So it goes back a ways. It has a history. It has quite a long history. Lithium salts have been used for more than 70 years to treat bipolar disorder. It's FDA approved and the gold standard treatment often called a miracle drug for mania and depression. Trials of lithium and impacts of Parkinson's are in phase one, but experts put lithium in the possibly disease-modifying category. So keep in mind, we are not recommending lithium or endorsing it as a treatment for motor or non-motor symptoms or as a cure for Parkinson's disease. The medical information in this episode is provided as a resource only and is not to be used or relied upon for any diagnostic or treatment purposes. The information should not be used as a substitute for professional diagnoses and treatment. That's quite a buildup, but it is leading to a fascinating book author interview. The book has just been released on January 31st, and it's titled The Promise of Lithium, How an Over-the-Counter Supplement May Prevent and Slow Alzheimer's and Parkinson's Disease. The author is Dr. Thomas Gattuso, Jr., Professor of Neurology at the University of Buffalo. Larry, you had an opportunity to talk with Dr. Gattuso, didn't you? I did. He's very grounded, uh, fun, you know, just sort of an everyday guy, realistic about lithium he's not selling it out of the back room he's like you know we need more research like there's a lot of promise here uh conservative in that way as most neurologists are uh, he laughed at my jokes so that was good uh and he, he is very cautious in fact he emailed me after our recording and wanted to be sure the listeners were aware dr Catuso does have a financial interest in lithium through his company e3 pharmaceuticals E3 Pharmaceuticals focuses on repurposing therapeutics in first-in-class treatments to improve the lives of patients. Current clinical areas of focus are neurodegenerative diseases, including Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease and long COVID. He tells me 50% of the profits will be dedicated to more and much-needed research. Okay, so let's get to it. Here's Larry's discussion about lithium and Parkinson's with Dr. Thomas Gattuso, Jr. called the promise of lithium now is this lithium making us a promise or just the the hope that we have in lithium (laughs) (laughs) hope we have enough lithium to make electric vehicles right (laughs) that's right right. elon musk is like wait a second don't don't eat all my batteries (laughs) it's in vaping devices uh, cell phones tablets laptops e-bikes electric toothbrushes tools hoverboards scooters 
It's been uh, used for solar power backup storage. Um, it was used uh, first fully man-made nuclear reaction. <laughs> it serves as a fusion fuel for staged thermonuclear weapons. But yeah, go ahead and uh, take some and see if it <laughs> helps your Parkinson's. It, it seems on the surface to be like, oh my, this seems like an outrageous idea. I know, I know. That's one of the barriers to developing lithium. So if you, if you think about the fact that just like in our food, we've got, there's calcium, there's magnesium, there's sodium, there's potassium. These are other elements on the periodic table of elements that are in our food, that's in our water. Same thing as lithium. We're exposed to lithium, trace amounts every day. Higher amounts of lithium are used in prescription medications, but from the studies that have been done, it doesn't appear that you really need a very high dose of lithium to potentially make a difference in these diseases. It does, it's interesting, it's almost like uh, microdosing. Yeah, very much. Lithium doesn't exist in nature, just lithium alone. It's always has to be bound to some type of salt carrier. And so um, there's all sorts of different lithium compounds in nature, lithium citrate, lithium carbonate, and the prescription lithium is lithium carbonate of what doctors prescribe for patients with bipolar disorder. Uh, but lithium that's in the drinking water and in our food is a variety of different forms of lithium, but it's the lithium ion itself, unbound, that's the therapeutic compound slash element. In the early years of, of you working in Parkinson's, what was the focus? Where, where was that hope? Back then, the buzzword was oxidative stress. People were looking for antioxidants. And a lot of that came out of this animal model. There was a lot of excitement back in the 80s when kind of by accident and semi-tragically, um, Bill Langston discovered um, these young people showing up in emergency rooms in San Francisco with just a horrible rapid onset Parkinsonism turned out to be they all were injecting drugs. And um, there was a contaminant called MPTP. And so quickly that was isolated. And then animal models were developed where you could inject MPTP into mice and m mice and primates were the two main animal models. And there was a lot of excitement that we were going to be able to quickly figure out why these dopamine cells were dying and, you know, more importantly, interventions to prevent that from occurring. And, you know, fast forward to today, it was uh, some um, kind of over-enthusiasm with the animal models. Yeah, and, and the alpha-synuclein had a lot of promise, and now I think people are wondering whether they should switch targets from alpha-synuclein. It's unfortunate that um, after all these years, we're still trying to identify what, what the targets are. You know, until we get an animal model that really does represent what's going on in humans, it's a lot safer if we can rely on any kind of existing human data. And that's a beautiful thing about lithium is there is a big body of human data out there in Parkinson's as well as in Alzheimer's. Because lithium, you know, if you kind of back up and think about lithium, it's not a drug. It's, a, it's an element. It's part of the planet. It's in the dirt. It's in the food we eat and the water we drink. 
So you can start looking at observational studies, looking at people who are taking lithium as a prescription medication for bipolar disorder, see if they have a decreased risk of these diseases. Look at people who are getting high amounts of lithium in their drinking water and look to see if they have a decreased incidence of these diseases. So this strategy is cutting the animal models out of the equation. Since the animal models have let us down quite a few unfruitful pathways. So well, it, it doesn't make sense seeing as in reality, you cannot give a mouse Parkinson's. Like they don't naturally develop Parkinson's. So it's not, you know, apples to apples. Exactly. Yeah. We can create these models, genetic models, toxin models to somewhat recapitulate what's going on in uh, patients with Parkinson's brains, but it's not an exact match. One of the big points of the book is to really look at a big body of evidence and literature that's been out since 1959, showing these associations between lithium exposure in humans and decreased incidence of both Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. So once well, again, the key is it has to break the blood-brain barrier in order for yeah. it to get to the brain. That's and, right. and lithium is able to do that. Lithium, it hitches a ride with sodium through these channels. And so the blood-brain barrier is loaded with sodium channels and neurons, the brain cells, um, are loaded with sodium channels. And so lithium gains very easy access across the blood-brain barrier and into the inside of brain cells, which is where you need a therapeutic target to get to make a difference in these targets, these destructive processes, the sticky proteins of alpha-synuclein, the chronic inflammation, and um, oxidative stress. So there you were, you were first looking at oxidative stress, and then you were looking at alpha-synuclein, and suddenly you go, you had this epiphany at some point, you went, hey, what about lithium? How did, how did you get interested in this? Yeah. Um, it seems like all of my research interests over the years have been completely by accident. I was not interested in lithium at all through my whole career until about eight and a half years ago when a patient of mine who has Parkinson's um, came in for just a routine office visit. And he and his wife both told me that his Parkinson's symptoms had improved tremendously. This one particular system symptom called motor fluctuations. It really didn't make any sense to me at all because his motor fluctuations were getting worse and worse over time, despite my best efforts. And they said, you know, the only thing that we can figure accounts for this is that his psychiatrist put him on lithium for his uh, bipolar disorder. That didn't make any sense to me at all. I'd never heard of lithium being potentially good for Parkinson's. You know, but I took them at their word and I did a literature search and I saw, wow, look at this. In the early 80s, there were a couple of papers that were written from a group at Duke Medical Center that looked at lithium for motor fluctuations and they found some benefit. But they were using a much higher dose of lithium than what this patient was taking. And though patients in that Duke study in the early 80s, they got a lot of side effects very quickly and needed to come off of lithium. And that was it. Nobody did any research on lithium from 1984 until I started getting interested in it eight years ago in terms of 
a potential therapy for Parkinson's patients. And I'm sure once you started to explore that, your colleagues were like, of course, lithium. <laughs> no, my colleagues were not like, of course, lithium at all. They looked at me and said, Tom, are you crazy? You're going to use lithium for Parkinson's? So much of any therapy you're talking about depends on the dose. If you use too high of a dose, if you name any medication, any therapy, too high of a dose will give you toxicity. It will give you um, bad side effects. Too low of a dose, you run the risk of uh, it not being effective because it's not um, engaging the mechanisms that you need to engage. So finding the right dose is key. And um, you know the researchers at Duke, they made this assumption, actually many researchers who have done research on lithium have made an assumption which has turned out to be completely incorrect, that the same dose that's effective for bipolar disorder is going to be the optimum dose to use in patients with Parkinson's or patients with Alzheimer's. And that over and over and over again has turned out to be very wrong. Um, you need to use much lower doses. And this patient, just by chance, who came to see me, my Parkinson's patient, he was on about half the dose of what is typically used for patients with bipolar disorder. I'm not sure why a psychiatrist prescribed him such a low dose. Maybe it's because he or she knew that um, uh, you know, this patient also had Parkinson's and just kind of wanted to go slow. But this patient, I followed him for a while, and he just continued to get benefit and did not get those side effects that the patients at Duke got at the higher dose of lithium. And so it was just a simple, like, you know, put two and two together. Maybe low dose lithium will give you the benefits without the harm. But that really started me down this rabbit hole of just like reading everything I could find about lithium and unearthing this huge body of literature that I was completely unaware of, showing that it may actually do something much more important than treat motor symptoms, which is potentially prevent and slow Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Which is amazing. That, 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 that's the game-winning shot. Yeah, that's what we've been looking for for a long, long time. You know, the book is very clear that we're not there yet. This is a promise of lithium. It's not a guarantee. Much more research needs to be done. That is for sure. But there is such a variety of evidence in humans, not in rats or mice or monkeys, in humans that very small doses of lithium could potentially prevent and slow these, these two diseases down. Now, we should be clear, people shouldn't try this on their own. Please don't just start experimenting and you know, licking your cell phone or whatever, hoping you get some <laughs> lithium. No, I'm glad you mentioned that, Larry. That's exactly true. You always have to let your, your treating healthcare provider know what you're thinking about, what you're taking, whether it's prescription or over-the-counter, um, to keep them informed. So when you buy the book, buy two copies, one for you and one for your neurologist. <laughs> sure, that'd be great. I like that idea. Because <laughs> likely, if you go to your doctor, your neurologist, your movement disorder specialist, say, hey, doc, I'm thinking about microdosing on lithium, they're going to slap you upside the head. They're going to say, what are you crazy? And then, and then at least you can have a book and say, look, here's some evidence. Doctors like evidence. Yeah. Um, hey, Dr. Tom says it's good. So <laughs> um, 
people in the Parkinson's community, we get inundated with these miracle cures, with these you know over over people over promising and under delivering, or you know these fly by night scams. There is evidence for this. This there this is this is this is science that is still in the making. Yes. That's exactly correct. This is science, this is evidence, and there's different levels of evidence and they're all important, but the top level of evidence when it comes to forming recommendations and guiding practice of patients is the randomized control clinical trial where you get a group of patients with a condition and you randomly assign them to a treatment or to a placebo Everybody's blinded and you follow them for a period of time. Um, and you see, are the patients who are randomly assigned to the therapy doing better on whatever your outcome measure is than the patients randomly assigned to a placebo? That's our highest level of evidence. That's the gold standard. That's how the FDA approves medications. Um, we can't get any better than that. But there are many other forms of evidence that aren't, that point us in certain directions that gives us some clues as to what we should study, what dose we should study, what particular um, patient population we should study. You know, the amazing thing about lithium is that all these different levels of evidence, starting from cell cultures and Petri dishes, going to animal models and mice and rats and primates, going into epidemiology studies and humans looking for associations and randomized control trials. All of that evidence is out there peer reviewed and published. And that's reviewed in the book. So where are we now in the process? Uh, is this something that you are beginning to prescribe to patients on a regular basis? No, I'm, I'm not prescribing lithium to patients to, um, hopefully slow down the disease. You know, obviously I have a lot of hope. Um, I have a lot of excitement about this, um, but we certainly don't have enough evidence at this time to quote unquote recommend it for patients. Um, there's more research that does need to be done. Where we're at right now for just specifically looking at low dose lithium therapy to hopefully slow down the disease our group at University of Buffalo has performed the, the first clinical trial um, on that. It was a pilot study. It was a very small study. We were only able to enroll 19 patients, and it was a biomarker study. And so, you know, biomarkers is a chapter in the book devoted to biomarkers because they're so important in how we are going to discover these therapies for Parkinson's and Alzheimer's to slow down the diseases is to show that it has an effect on a biomarker. And so we looked at uh, brain biomarkers that you can measure on MRI scan and blood-based biomarkers and found that lithium had positive effects on both of these. We need to expand it and we actually have secured funding now. Within a couple months, we're gonna be opening enrollment and enrolling 15 more patients into the dose that was most promising from our initial study. Yeah, and it looks like we're hopeful that we're going to be getting some more funding from another organization to expand the study further. So it's a slow process. It's, you know, it's frustrating for everybody, especially for patients, how long it takes for, um, you know, us to get these studies completed. 
But if we are able to replicate what we found in our smaller study, in this larger study, that will then set us up, I believe, to do a multi-centered study of a much larger number of patients where we can get the funding that we need to more definitively determine is lithium number one actually improving these biomarkers? And most importantly, is it slowing down the progression of symptoms in patients, both their motor symptoms and non-motor symptoms, which can be um, pretty disabling for Parkinson's patients, especially cognitive symptoms, cognitive slowing, memory impairment, word finding difficulties. Would you call this then lithium is a neuroprotective? Well, in animal models, it definitely is neuroprotective. You know, the way you prove that is when you give lithium to mice or rats, you know, you see how they do their behavior, their symptoms. But then at the end of the study, with rats and mice, you can cut their heads off and look at how many cells are left in the brain. Yeah, the autopsy comes later for the people with Parkinson's. <laughs> you can't do that. But we have MRI scans yeah. um, that we can do in patients, and it's a fairly inexpensive study that's available at you know every medical center. And um, uh, this one particular outcome called free water is quite is quite promising as a disease progression biomarker. Okay, so I'm going to push pause here. <laughs> Dr. Katusa just mentioned free water disease progression biomarker. This one particular outcome called free water is quite is quite promising as a disease progression biomarker. I know all of the words individually, but I don't know exactly what he means. What exactly is this target? So free water is defined as water molecules that are free to diffuse and do not experience restrictions or hindrance. So they're just, they're not attached to anything. They're just sort of in the crevices of your brain. It can be found in extracellular space, which includes cerebrospinal fluid, interstitial space, or plasma. And to measure it, they use a DTI, or an, a diffusion MRI scan. So it's like a fancy MRI. It's like got colors and stuff. And it can scan measures of water diffusion between the cells, and is most commonly used to create maps of the brain. And unlike an MRI, a DTI can access the direction and motion of the water molecules, it provides images of white matter tracks in the central nervous system. So they can kind of see like where it's directed and where it's headed based on the different colors. And the, So it's really cool. And an MRI can just show you that it's there, but they can't tell you what direction it's flowing. That's fascinating. So do we know how soon is all of this technology going to be available to people with Parkinson's? Fantastic question. So let's listen in. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into I realize you're early in these studies, but you know, time is brain, as neurologists like to say. Yes. Um, it's like, uh, you know, here I am five years after my diagnosis, and you're still five years away from probably a phase three trial. I know, I know it's frustrating. And that's another reason I wanted to write the book, because, you know, when I would talk to patients about these, my interests, my patients are always asking me, you know, anything new, anything promising. You know, how can you please educate me? You know, I'm, I'm really looking for, for anything at all. It doesn't have to be 100% proven. And um, 
You know, I wanted people, patients to know about this body of literature because really it's, um, lithium is available as an over-the-counter um, dietary supplement. Um, and so it's like a vitamin mineral that you can purchase over the counter. So although I do not recommend that patients take it without letting their doctors know what they're doing, um, at the end of the day, it is their choice. You know, your, your doctor can't prevent you from buying vitamin C if you really feel for after you educate yourself and inform yourself that you want to take vitamin C. Um, you should listen to your doctor and you should listen to their advice. Um, but this is something that is available. And so, you know, in the last chapter of the book, I try and address this, um, you know, yes, patients would like very often to try something while they're waiting for more definitive research to be completed. Some people feel like, you know, I, I don't want to take something that's quote unquote experimental, even if I can purchase it over the counter, I want to wait for better evidence. So, you know, everybody has that, that choice and that determination to make. So it's really informed. The purpose of the book is to educate and inform and um, make people aware that there is this choice available. Well, one of the, one of the interesting parts of the book that I really enjoyed was how you, in, in making your case to the, the public and to the, your peers, you're like, let's look at history and how some of the other medications that were wild ideas back in the day, uh, how they came to be and why this could be one of those things. <laughs> when I really started thinking about about lithium and about, you know, if this research pans out in the future. And, you know, so this is the big if, if it does turn out to be proven as a effective way to prevent and slow down these diseases. We're going to look back at this and say, like, the answer was right under our feet. Literally, it's in the dirt. And I was thinking to myself, is there anything else, any other example historically where there was a lot of resistance um, to the whole world accepting something that people had observed over and over again to be effective? And I think it just popped into my head. Scurvy. 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 This man's got scurvy. 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 Our gums are black, our teeth are falling out. We got spots on our back, so give it up and shout. Scurvy. Scurvy. We got scurvy. Scurvy. We got scurvy. Scurvy. We got scurvy. 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 Um, it takes a while for people to accept something that seems just ridiculously simple and somewhat crazy. Um, back in the days when tens of thousands of sailors were dying, millions of sailors eventually of scurvy, the medical community thought that scurvy was from a whole host of different causes. That was a very complicated condition and people had lots of different theories on what was causing scurvy. But way back in the 1500s, it was documented that people who ate certain things, drank this tea made from a, a particular kind of um, spruce tree up in Canada, were cured of their scurvy within days. And yet these observations, even though they were written and published and out there, were just not believed. 
it took 400 years and so many sailors and others dying of scurvy um, before number one, it was universally accepted that scurvy was a result of vitamin C deficiency. And then number two, uh, actually isolating vitamin C and showing what vitamin C was. Um, but it took 300 years before people really embraced and accepted the simple treatment of um, eating citrus um, as, as a very effective way to uh, prevent and treat scurvy. We got scurvy. We got scurvy. We got scurvy. In the book, you're talking about your your patient Ted, who came to you uh, with the uh, who was taking the lithium for bipolar, and it was making him feel better. And you 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 gave equal weight to his observations and his wife's op observations. How important is uh, the partner in Parkinson's? when it comes to tracking success? It's very important. Uh, the most important is what the patient is telling you. Um, but sometimes really patients doubt their own observations. And sometimes they miss things that, uh, you know, a spouse or a caretaker will, will notice. I always get way more accurate information when patients come to see me, you know, with either you know, one of their kids who spends a lot of time with them or, you know, a spouse or a partner. Um, Cause a lot of times our loved ones see things in us that we just don't see, we don't appreciate. And when they tell us, sometimes we're resistant. Um, you know, I think in particular about um, mood disorders, you know, depression in particular, that, you know, people are very resistant to see those symptoms, but your loved ones, they see the change, you know, they've known they, they know my patients way better than I will ever know. Them. They've lived with them. They've taken care of them for a long time. And they know. So I, I very much um, put a lot of uh, weight on what I hear from spouses, caretakers. So, yeah, when this patient's wife, um, really the wife was more impressed than the patient was. The patient was very impressed with how much better he was doing. But the wife... Um, she was at, at that particular visit was, uh, was really convinced that, that there was something special that was going on. You, you talked about how it improved his symptoms, but then you've, you've also mentioned that it could potentially be something to stop Parkinson's in its tracks. What, what, what evidence have you seen to make you believe that? Yeah. So in my own personal experiences, it's, it's like impossible to see if patients are, you know, their disease is slowing down. This is where we have to do research. We have to do research with biomarkers. We have to do long-term studies um, where we can compare patients in different groups. You know, the symptomatic benefit for decreasing motor fluctuations um, that I've observed, and now it's about 25, 30 patients, um, you know, that's something that uh, appears to improve symptoms fairly quickly. Um, and patients see it, their um, loved ones see it, and I see it. Again, I should mention, this has not been proven in a randomized controlled trial. It's just uh, my anecdotal experiences. But for what you're hinting at there for, you know, trying to stop the progression of Parkinson's or at least slow down the progression, we talk that the term for that is a disease-modifying therapy versus a symptomatic 
therapy. Which there are none at this point for Parkinson's. There are no disease modifying therapies for Parkinson's. That's the big, um, you know, unmet need. There's quite a bit of evidence that lithium may be a disease modifying therapy. Um, more research needs to be done. But in order to prove something like that, it takes much larger studies, long-term studies. Symptomatic treatments are fairly straightforward and um, much quicker to, to prove. Disease-modifying therapies are much more involved in terms of how you have to investigate them. Uh, you, you also mentioned in the book about how lithium is a, shows up big time in tobacco. You hear this every now and again, like if you're a smoker, you're less likely to get Parkinson's disease, and, and, and which is unfortunate because I was a smoker, a good smoker for a good five, six years. It didn't help <laughs> me at all. Uh, <laughs> when, when, when lithium kind of comes into our lives like that, how do you discern whether it's, it's, it's direct or if it's just coincidental? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, we're talking about different levels of evidence. And so this is when I say that the evidence starts way back in 1959, that's when the first papers were coming out showing that smoking had all these horrible effects on our health, huge increased risk for heart attacks, for stroke, for lung cancer, um, and decreased life expectancy. But that way back in 1959, um, those studies also showed a big reduced risk for Parkinson's in smokers. And um, there was very little attention was given to it back then. Uh, it was probably about 70 observational studies looking at smokers versus non-smokers, looking at people exposed to secondhand smoke, um, and looking at people who quit smoking versus people who started smoking and, and the incidence of Parkinson's. And the studies all line up and show a humongous risk reduction in smokers. So the question is, what's in tobacco? Is there some neuroprotective compound in tobacco that could be beneficial for Parkinson's patients? I mean, clearly we wouldn't tell Parkinson's patients to start smoking. Although one of the once who started smoking after after he was diagnosed with Parkinson's, and he was he just started, he said I hate smoking, I find it disgusting, but I'm going to keep on smoking because I think it's going to help my Parkinson's. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. don't do that, people. No, don't do that. It is very interesting. It's a big risk reduction. It's about a 75, 77 percent reduced risk that smokers have of developing Parkinson's. That's a- How do you define a smoker? Like it's not a ca casual smoker. This is gonna be a good smoker, right? Like, um, it's, It doesn't have to be a ton. Even uh, people who are smoking like a half of a pack a day will have a significant risk reduction. And people who were a smoker and quit, they still have a risk reduction for Parkinson's versus a never smoker. You know, the thought is what, is there something in, tobacco that could be beneficial, that could slow down Parkinson's. And the first compound people thought of was nicotine, kind of the first thing, you know, what's in tobacco? People think of nicotine. And there were some animal studies that, that showed some uh, kind of lukewarm benefit. And so uh, a big study was funded by Michael J. Fox Foundation, where people were just like the study we we're talking about. Parkinson's patients, it was about 100 Parkinson's patients were randomly assigned to either a nicotine patch 
or a placebo patch and followed for a year. And at the end of the year, they found that the patients who were randomly assigned to the nicotine patch were doing worse than the patients on the placebo patch. Exact opposite of what the hypothesis was. And so a lot of people lost interest in tobacco and looking for some compound in tobacco. They said, well, we gave it the college try. We studied nicotine. It was a long, arduous, expensive study, and it completely flopped. Let's think about something else. But there are thousands of compounds in tobacco, and any one or combination of what could be beneficial for Parkinson's. And so, you know, the association that kind of knocked me off my seat when I came across the, the study was that tobacco has super high levels of lithium. Um, there's something about the tobacco plant that is very efficient at absorbing all metals. You mentioned earlier that, you know, lithium is a, is a metal, it's the lightest metal on earth. And many other metals, um, the tobacco plant absorbs from the soil and concentrates in its leaves, which is, you know, the part of the tobacco plant that's put in cigarettes. Um, so, you know, the simple theory is maybe it's lithium and not nicotine or something else. And wouldn't it be great if it was lithium because very low doses of lithium, even higher doses used to treat bipolar disorder, we've known for a long time are safe. Well, and, and I find it fascinating, you know, you talk about it being in the dirt and, you know, and tobacco grows in the ground. This, this lithium was discovered 13 billion years ago during the Big Bang. It's part of the, the creation of our universe. That's right. Yeah. It's, and it's so it's cool. like one of those original elements, which, you know, come with, you know, there's, there's got to be some secret sauce to that, right? I mean, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it, everything we need comes in that uh, original kit and we just got to figure out what goes with what. <laughs> yeah. If it was good enough to be one of the first three elements at the formation of the universe, <laughs> maybe it's doing something important. Yeah. Maybe we shouldn't be afraid of it and just figure out what it can do for us. It can't be easy to be in your position and to face your peers and say, no, please try this, try this. Sometimes it may be feel like you're screaming in a windstorm because uh, I know uh, I, I'm not going to characterize all neurologists, but some of them are kind of crotchety. <laughs> um, well, I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> but um, maybe stuck in their way. Yeah, you know we always want to do best by our patients and um, neurologists in general tend to be a pretty conservative bunch. And so we're not risk takers. Um, and, but it doesn't matter what field you're in, you know, you want some degree of evidence to support what you're going to tell your patients, what you're going to recommend to them. We need more evidence is really uh, the bottom line. Um, but when I do, present this at meetings and when I talk to my colleagues about it, just like I was eight years ago when I first started reading about it, they're flabbergasted. They're like, you got to be kidding me. Lithium? Really? There's been clinical trials done with lithium that shows that it slows Alzheimer's disease? You got to be kidding me. Where is this study? Let me see it. How, how could I have never seen it? Why has there been no discussion about it at all? It's like not just one, but two. I think... I feel, I hope that the tide is turning. You know, I'm starting, I've been trying now 
for you know, the past like six years with many different grant applications to different agencies to try and get funding to move um, this research forward. And I'm just starting to get some positive responses and some some funding. Um, you know, if if our studies continue to show these positive results, I sure hope this can kind of turn the tide and getting a lot more research done and getting a lot more scientists and researchers interested and accepting and curious about lithium. I mean, what a shame it would be if like the story with scurvy, it took 300 years before people started to accept something that there was plenty of evidence to support its, its benefit. You know, it's gonna take, it's gonna take more research, um, but it is fun, like you mentioned, to mention this to my colleagues and they look at me jaw <laughs> drops and they're like uh come again lithium are you serious right. <laughs> uh you've mentioned alzheimer's and parkinson's what about some of the other neurodegenerative diseases is there hope there as well yes uh, and i'm glad you brought that up um you know so the neurodegenerative diseases virtually all of them share this bermuda triangle it's some combination of these toxic sticky proteins that get stuck in brain cells, inflammation and oxidative stress. Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are what gets most attention because they're the number one and number two most common neurodegenerative diseases. But there's, there's plenty of others. Um, and yeah, there's a potential that low doses of lithium could make a difference in those other conditions as well in terms of slowing them down. Time will tell. Right? Most of the research that's been done with lithium in patients has been in Alzheimer's disease, primarily because it's so much more common than Parkinson's. Um, there's a big study going on right now at University of Pittsburgh. Fortunately, the NIH did fund a, uh, a lithium study there. I'm a little concerned that they may have chosen too high of a dose. Um, you know, we talked about how many of these early studies have had, you know, a lot of patients have dropped out because they haven't tolerated, you know, too high of a dose. I hope I'm wrong. I hope patients stay in this study and, um, you know, we get some good data out of it. Kind of the, the field of developing lithium for treating neurodegenerative disease says is more, it, it's progressed further in Alzheimer's and in Parkinson's. Um, personally, I'm trying to rectify that disparity between the conditions. But yeah, like you said, so there's Lewy body dementia is another condition kind of similar to Parkinson's that potentially could get some benefit from lithium, cortical basal degeneration, progressive supranuclear palsy. These are other conditions that have similar symptoms to Parkinson's, you know, and then other forms of dementia, frontotemporal dementia, all these different conditions they have, they share these, this Bermuda triangle, these sticky proteins, chronic inflammation and oxidative stress. And um, yeah, and lithium effectively engages all three of those pathological processes. You know, so it does, it does have a lot of potential. I think a lot of promise. Just so people know, when they buy the book, they should read the back cover first. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's a it's pretty good quote on the back of the book. <laughs> it's fantastic. I love the quote. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, Tom, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Larry. It was great talking. 
So Larry, we both had access to this book prior to publication and found it to be fascinating as an exploration of the possibilities and just an encouragement to look at things that aren't traditionally looked at by the scientific community, but look at it with a scientific eye and with a discerning and skeptical eye and see, let's just be curious and see if this might have a positive effect. And then how do we bring that to the community? We're looking at other targets. We're looking at other factors and we're, look, we're using the original, you know, you know, elements of, of the universe, which, you know, you, you got to believe, like I told the, the good doctor, you know, hey, they packed us with everything we need to survive. We just got to figure out how to use those tools, right? Right. And he took something he noticed. He saw a trend anecdotally and said, I wonder if there's some science behind this. Let's do some proper research and figure out what this is. What am I noticing? What may have a positive effect? What are we not seeing? It can be as simple as millions of people died from scurvy and then they realize if you eat an orange every day, you, you won't have scurvy. There, there, there can be some... And, and that took quite a long time to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, so, so let's start this one now. Right. <laughs> Hopefully it won't take 400 years for it to catch on. Well, things move a little faster now than they yes, used to. Certainly do. So you wrote a blurb for the book. Oh, I did. Would you like to share that? Oh, well, thank you for asking. So here's what's on the back of the book. Page after stunning page with the promise of lithium, Dr. Catuso amps up the urgency and cranks up hope for people with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. The author's bold assertions, backed by hundreds of sources, have the readers rooting for him and lithium. The neuroprotective promise will spark conversation and kick up some dust in the Parkinson's community. Okay, so after all of this, if you're interested in reading the book... The Promise of Lithium is available wherever you buy books, and the book's website is www.promiseoflithium.com. When Life Gives You Parkinson's is a Curious Cast production. Story producer is Dila Velazquez, sound designed by Greg Schott. The presenting partner is Parkinson Canada, where people with Parkinson's are at the center of everything they do. Parkinson Canada funds critical research, provides information and support, increases awareness and advocates for improved healthcare outcomes for people with Parkinson's across Canada. Learn more at parkinson.ca. Thanks also to our promotional partners, the World Parkinson Congress 2023 coming up July 4th through 7th in Barcelona, Spain. Find out details, register right now at wpc2023.org. PD Avengers, a global alliance of people with Parkinson's, their partners, families, and friends united to the cause of ending Parkinson's disease. We need you. We need your help. Join now at pdavengers.com. Spotlight, YOPD, one of the only organizations in the world with the singular focus of raising awareness of young-onset Parkinson's disease. Spotlight, yopd.org. We'd really appreciate it if you would share this podcast with someone. (laughs) Personal recommendations are the most effective way to grow our audience and, more importantly, to raise awareness of Parkinson's disease. Keep positive. Keep exercising. Keep listening. We'll talk to you next time.